I'm working on an Ira Glass impersonation. Oh, give it to try, us. Are you ready to try it out today, Jeff? I think. Yeah, let me, let me try it. Today on the show, um, we have a lot of question marks in our head about where we're headed. What's up, boss? This is Abraham's wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Well, boy, do we have a treat this week. Uh, Steven, we have long-term, long-term friend of the podcast, uh, Jeff Davenport is with us. He's I, he's the second cousin of the podcast, is Jeff Davenport, coming to us live all the way from Colorado, scenic Colorado. How's it going, Jeff? Colorful Colorado is what all the signs say. I'm glad to be here. I never get invited to the family reunions, but I'm glad to be here today, sneaking in and grabbing some corn on the cob. Off. All right, just stay over yeah, there. We'll let you know when it's late. <laughs> Oh man. Uh, well, that's a good intro. I, I, I wanted to talk today because I'm going to publish an article today, probably, or maybe, maybe on Monday, but before this podcast comes out, as is my tradition about the best books I read in 2020. And I sent you that article, Stephen, and we said, well, we could just talk through some books we've read in 2020 and do a little play-by-play there. And then we we had the great idea, I don't know if it was you or me, to invite a real published author to oh. contribute to this Tom podcast. Clancy will be on in a moment. <laughs> Host of Tom Clancy. That's right. Well, I was thinking that we could put, we could bring a real reader on since I know, Mark, you're just starting to read and reading isn't really a part of my life at all. So I just thought, I know Jeff has he learned to read years ago and he reads from time to time and i just thought maybe a reader having a reader on would be good reading is fundamental i always think of oh the old ad forever it was uh oh who's the basketball player why am i forgetting it i love to read john howard. howard yeah Juwan i love to read and when i finish one book i've got to read another right good for you i'm the john howard of reading i've got a problem i love to read so when I start a good book, I can't put it down. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I have to keep reading. Then as soon as I finish, I can't wait to start the next book. I better get started. We've been told that this is some people's favorite part of the whole podcast. Is well, the- we haven't been told that. It's my favorite part. However we want to cast Jeff, I'm glad that you're here, Jeff. Well, I'll I'll cast Jeff. I'm sorry. I thought thought that was the intro. I'll give an intro. Jeff's my good old dear friend. I've I've known him since college. He's old, um, gray, bearded, uh, Wayne. He's he's Wayne or Juan. How do you say that, Jeff? Juan, why so pale and wan, fond lover? That's right. We grew up together in Houston. Uh, we our, our lives have meandered in separate places, and uh, he ended up in the more beautiful location 
and I ended up with the better. <laughs> I don't know how to finish that. All right. Uh, so so here he is. He he's just going to talk with us today. He's fine. Hi. Hi, how are you? All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to start through Mark's favorite books that he read over the last year. So um, trust us, he read so freaking many books. He's only bringing you the very finest books, the choicest books as a recommendation to you listeners so that you'll have access to just the best cuts. These are the Kobe beef cuts of Mark's books. You, so, can, you can only get these cuts in Japan. Okay, um, so let's just start in, Mark. Go. Okay. I don't think I want to just start in first. I want to say... You never do. <laughs> this is a reversal of our roles. Normally, I try to start the podcast and then you go back to some sort of banter. But... Uh, I didn't. I, my goal in a in an average year is to read one or two books a month, which isn't that many. But this year presented an opportunity to read a whole lot more books than that. So I think you were making fun of me when you said uh, how many books I read. But you can't believe how many books. But I did read more books than I normally would, and I think some of them I was forced to read because they were in the cultural zeitgeist. And I had to read them in order to feel like I could have a conversation with somebody to tell them why those books either were genius or totally bereft of, of wisdom. And other stuff I read because it felt like this year was a good year to get a hold of some good fiction and not read books about the cultural zeitgeist. So uh, I'll kind of dig into what I read, but I'm also going to just pepper you as I hope Jeff and Steven, you will do as well with some, just some quick tidbits from other stuff that we might not want to discuss at length, but that was a contributing book to my year. So yeah, the best book I read this year, uh, it was East of Eden by John Steinbeck. The reason that I like it is because it just, it sounds so intellectual at parties when you go and say, uh, no, I, I don't know if, if our listenership has read Steinbeck. I actually hadn't. This We didn't have to read any of this in high school, which makes us strange. But uh, I, I read East of Eden, Grapes of Wrath, and another one that I think you might talk about, Travels with Charlie, this year. I think we had to read Of Mice and Men in like 11th grade, and that's it. I don't think I, don't think I had any more school that assigned any Steinbeck. Jeff? No, it was always the short stuff. It was Tortilla Flat and uh, The Pearl and Mice and Men. Those are the shorties. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I had a real hard time deciding if Grapes of Wrath or East of Eden was better, but they have a lot of similarities in that they detail families going through immense hardship. And in the case of Grapes of Wrath, those families really bind together uh, and it's grotesque and also redeeming in the case of east of eden it's a multi-generational curse and blessing story that starts with a very cain and abel like uh event so that's why the book gets its name east of eden you've got you've got these metaphors happening the there's a mirroring of the cain and abel story and 
of the Caleb and Aaron story. Um, so a lot of biblical references. It's extremely expansive, even though it mostly takes place in the place where John Steinbeck actually grew up. I could probably read it three more times and draw three more. Three times? Yeah, it's just, it's there. It's very thick. It's the type of book you finish and you go, I bet I collected 25% of the the good stuff in that one. So I'm not a literary critic. I don't have brilliant things to say about the book, except that I really enjoyed it. And uh, it made me think about it for most of the time I wasn't reading it while I was in the middle of it. And it's epic because it talks about many generations in a family, right? Yeah, if you want to if you want to dig into a secular person's uh, astute observation that hey, it looks like there's generational curses in the world, read East of Eden. Jeff, what'd you think of the movie adaptation? You know what? I I haven't seen it. Uh, there, it only covers a small portion of the book. When I finished the book, I thought I'll, I'll go watch that movie, and I haven't I haven't seen it. That that book doesn't set it up set itself up for a movie. It sets itself up for a Sprawling miniseries, yeah, something big, something like Lonesome Dove. Yeah, exactly. Maybe someday it'll happen for us. There was a big time writer who wrote, who took a stab at it, and they were going to make it, and nothing happened. It is a good book, my word, it's a great book. I remember years ago, gosh, probably ten years ago, I worked somewhere, and this guy I really respected. He said, "Uh, "Have you read East of Eden?" I said, "No." And he handed me his copy and he said, do yourself a favor, give yourself the gift of East of Eden. And I thought, well, that's a silly way to word Gross. it. And then I, I read it and then I thought, yeah, that was a, there's a bit of a gift to that. Me and you are old, we, me and you are longtime uh, Steinbeck fans there, Jeff. We've, we've been out to see uh, Rocinante at the old uh, Steinbeck Museum in Salinas, California. I would still say that Travels with Charlie is one of my favorite books. Um, Stephen gave me a copy, gosh, got to be 20 years ago. And I've reread it a couple of times. There's just a lot of beauty to that. Um, It's always a shame when you dive into someone who you really admire, the author, and see that his life is, yeah, he had had a troubled life. He He brought troubles on himself. But the Steinbeck he presents in that book, that true story of him traveling across America with his big standard poodle, Charlie, is uh, you admire the guy all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen told me to give myself the gift of Travels with Charlie because I was. I didn't ra- put it that way. I never said that. <laughs> yeah. I was raving so much about East of Eden and Grapes of Wrath that Stephen said, Well, you got to try Travels with Charlie. And I think I was just so dialed into the, I was like, okay, here we go. Another epic tale of human (laughs) conquest. And then I got, you know, the story of him getting drunk with the gypsies with Charlie. uh, And it was just different. So it was breaking an egg, breaking an egg into his coffee. I always remember with the, with the uh, seasonal harvesters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He says, he says it would put a, he put a shine on his coffee when you, when you put an egg in there. Yeah. You, good- you, you just solved a mystery for me. In the last two, three years, I knew I had heard of putting an egg in coffee. I have Googled it. I thought it was from an old, I thought it was from an old Bogart and Bacall movie. I couldn't find it. You just solved the mystery for me. Hallelujah. That's wonderful. Do you guys want to I love this right podcast. Now? I love this podcast. I'm going to go on record. It's in Travels with Charlie. All right. Go on, Mark. The only thing I'll, I have to say that made Travels with Charlie tougher for me, 
I I've listened maybe in my past uh, this, I guess you could call this our repentance hour, uh, Abraham's wallet, but I might've listened to too much NPR uh, in my life. And the whole time I was reading travels with Charlie, I was hearing it narrated in my brain in David Sedaris's voice. Oh my word. <laughs> so and it was all with a little bit of a lisp. <laughs> Sad. But I don't know, maybe maybe that'll be life-giving for you guys if you go back and reread with uh, with David Sedaris. Um, you know that I, okay. you know, I, Ira Glass, just while we're on the subject, I'm working on an Ira Glass impersonation. Oh, give it to try, us. Are you ready to try it out today, Jeff? I think, yeah, let me, let me try it. Today on the show, um, we have a lot of question marks in our head about where we're headed and what's going to happen. So now it's just lots of question marks. This guy's all question marks. It's all yes. up talk. He's, he's yes. high pitched up talk. And what you what you just did at the end, I remember well. He he'll connect the end of one sentence into the beginning of another, and the pause is after the first phrase in the next sentence, not between sentences. George Clooney used to do that on ER. Give me one thing you read this year, Stephen. Give us a little quick interlude from Mark. Okay. Well, I've I've read your article. I previewed your article. Can I? Should I steal thunder from your article? Okay. Do it. I'm not going to call this the best book I read this year, but I'm I'm it's. it's as far as what, if you want to stay abreast, you want to stay abreast. If you want, you are abreast and you want to stay abreast, this is what you should do. Read Live Not By Lies, Rod Dreher. 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 Um, Dreher. Dreher. <clears throat> the Dreher, Rod Dreher. It's, uh, he, he is a social commentator. He's a Christian. He's Orthodox, so... I don't know what are you whatever you think about that. He what he did was he went into um, post-communist Eastern Europe and interviewed about 120 Christian survivors and got their takes on one. What are the similarities you saw when when as communism was was kind of the clouds were forming and and communism was starting to grip your nation what are the similarities between what you saw there and what you see happening in the united states right now and secondly how did your faith survive that thing what happened and they are outrageously inspiring encouraging stories of simple small things that people did it wasn't through massive protests it was through having a reading hour in your home through watching movies that encourage people about the way the, what the lifestyle we're experiencing right now isn't all there is, etc. So he kind of refers to it as a guidebook for entering what he calls soft totalitarianism, which means that the government isn't standing in the streets in, with boots and guns pointed at you, but the corporations and social media, etc., are are ready to cancel you out. You will be you will be um, pushed to the edges not by government, but by society itself. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate appreciated about it is that he said, don't say what they tell you to say. So the live not by lies idea means you can let people, you can let people spout off any amount of lies or untruth they want to. You don't have to run around and try to chase down all of the fires of all the lies, but ultimately they're gonna try to put their lies in your mouth and make you try to say them, try to make you say them. And then that that's something that we can't do. And I would say, actually, I could say this for all three of us, 
that's that's been helpful advice for us this year and newsflash anybody who doesn't know it it's it's going to get worse um and i I, that's not a political statement we've been obviously politics are kind of hot right now but you know my wife and i were just talking about first timothy 3 says that things are going to go from bad to worse that it's going to get worse so if you want to be kind of arming up for what what i don't know present trends that will probably um get worse as we enter in times uh live not by lies is helpful it's encouraging it gives us some some practical advice from people who have lived through uh totalitarianism when to fight when to remain silent when to cause problems, when to keep your mouth shut as progressivism sweeps over everything, takes over everything. So that was a long, that was a long thought. Anyone else? I will just chime in that in the 2021 book review that we will probably be releasing in about a year. Uh, That's when I bet it'll happen. I'm going to be giving you the full rundown on a lot of the theology books I've been studying. But one of them would suggest that one of the big things I've been trying to figure out is in times eschatology, all this stuff. And I don't want to, to rain on your parade, but I think there's a strong argument to say it's going to get better and better as we near the end. And uh, so uh, I also don't think that that, that uh, contradicts Dreyer saying in the near term, and if you're not a dum-dum and you look around at what's happening in our country and other places in the world right now, it's pretty obviously going to be taking a dip on its, we're at least in a localized downturn in terms of uh, the amount of dominion that we are able to exercise as believers. But now Anytime anyone mentions eschatology, we want to contrast that to another field of study. Which is what, Jeff? Scatological. Scata, scata. Scatology. Yeah, very different. <laughs> yeah. Both very, very consuming and can really draw you in. Important stuff. Either way you go. Since you brought it up, I want to talk about another book that wasn't my favorite that I read this year, but it was the most important book I felt like I read this year. Goodbye. And that was The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was the guy who actually wrote an essay called Live Not By Lies that led to Rodreyer naming his book after that essay. Uh, this is a combination of memoir and uh, reporting that, that Solzhenitsyn did by talking to others who had been through the gulags in the Soviet era. Um, and it starts out kind of telling stories from the from the Russian Revolution, but really focuses on the time period that Solzhenitsyn experienced. It is brutality to read it, and it pairs very nicely with Live Not By Lies because it's, I think, Roger Ayer has gotten a lot of flack for his book. People saying, you're just an alarmist. Uh, you're you're really just trying to sell books by scaring the crap out of people. And that's been an accusation he has received since he wrote Benedict Option a few years ago. But if you read Gulag Archipelago, uh, the, the version that's slightly abridged is out now with 
uh, an introduction by Jordan Peterson. So I know a lot of our listeners think he has interesting things to say sometimes. Um, it's, I think, very important and good equipment to have on board as you think about the direction that our society may or may not be going as we start to um, maybe indulge some of the ideas that were popular in Marxist era. I don't want us to, to fly off the handle into conspiracy land or political talk here, but I do think that book was, was really helpful to me. Regarding the gulag, uh, there's a little bit more uh, in, in all of our, well, at least in my pocket and your pocket about sort of dystopian um, bad news stuff, right? We could just kind of hit a couple of those books. Yeah, let's do it. I, I, I got on a real, uh, I think I started when I Googled best post-apocalyptic books ever written. And I got a list of 50 or so, and I probably read six or seven. And some of them I passed on to you. So you can tell us what you enjoyed. Okay, well, we'll start with uh, what you told me to read on my uh, break. Um, when I had had uh, Zeitgeist at the yang and wanted less zeitgeist in your so, yang so you told me to um, read alas babylon which is a book published in the 50s um and alas babylon if i hadn't known it it, it, it could have been written this year it was it was delightful loved it um and it, it's based on the premise of what if the russians got their rockets off first which and, is and really it's really interesting because at the time the book was written, Russia had intercontinental ballistic missiles and the United States did not. And there was this short two and a half year window in history where it was a very real possibility that in the United States, everybody was sitting around going, if they fire these rockets, we're not sure we can get our planes in the air in time. And they might be able to just eliminate our map before we know what's happening yeah so it's one of these books that sort of describes okay what what do you do when there's no more mass communication where there's no more electricity and and how do we get by i mean when you actually as the book goes along kind of watch gasoline be used up and there's no more gasoline etc um just a just a interesting you know look at communities forming and how, how the give and take of, of what what bartering turns into, et cetera. And uh, I thought it was a great time. Yeah, it's a fun book. And fun factoid, there's evidence that people in the Kremlin read this book when it came out and potentially uh, took it to heart uh, because the, the without giving away the story uh, it doesn't end as the Russians would have hoped it ends um, and so I think that's just fun and interesting when a work of fiction could potentially have changed the course of sort of geopolitical maneuvering okay that is interesting want to say when I when I read Alas Babylon I then told you to read one second after right that's right and then did you, you did read that and, and what I you did. Think? It's funny because that book was written much, much more recently. Yeah. Uh, and yet, and that book, uh, it, it, the premise of that one is that an EMP goes off above the United States and knocks out the power grid. And that's all. 
nobody gets blown up, nothing. It's just all electricity is gone. And anything that runs on electricity, including like cars, uh, anything that has a computer in it is fried. Um, and it was written by a guy who devoted most of his life in the military to researching this. And from start to finish of his career, he had been screaming, this is a huge risk. Will somebody take it seriously? Because there's things we could do to prepare for it that we're not doing. And he never really got traction while he was in the military. So he wrote this book when he retired. And the interesting thing is they end up in roughly the same place <laughs> as the people in 1959, except the people in the 50s are much better off because they have a better memory of, yes. does anybody around here know how to build a steam engine? Because that right. would be useful. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, in in 2000, and I, I have to go back and look when that book was written specifically, there was very few people around who still had plow horses on hand and yeah. things like that who knew how to fabricate uh, the tools that would be needed to run society. So, yeah, that did seem, that did seem really interesting to me reading Alas Babylon when they would talk about, you know, the poor black family over here, they created some irrigation system or something. You kind of think like, what, how do they know how to do that stuff? And they were just, well, the guy down the street knew how to build, how to farm, how to get salt out of water, evaporator. Like what? Anyways. Yeah, that was interesting. I'll never forget closing uh one second after which is about the power grid going out and about 45 minutes after i finished reading it our power went out for five days in salt lake city um we had had a massive massive windstorm the night before and i thought oh we made it through and then i don't know how but afterwards our power went out and they sent support in from every state around utah and tried to help us but five days, and I'm just having finished this book, uh, one of the people that works in our home, she and she was living with us at the time, uh, she's a type 1 diabetic, and I remember saying, like, you know, if this goes on for, like, a few more weeks, you're the first to go, because it's not good for the type 1 diabetics when the power grid goes down. I'll just say that. Meaning you'd fire her? Yeah, just so that her blood's not on our hands? No. Good move. I was pretty sure the power was coming back on so that we could make morbid, morbid jokes like that without consequence. What y'all are talking about in terms of being reading books that remind us of times in the past when we more connected to old things in the past. And, we, you know, like the recently someone knew how to build a steam engine. They, they built a steam engine. Makes me think of I've been reading more World War II books lately because after you get to 45, you're kind of legally required to read. Uh, They make you read war books. Mm -hmm. I get it. And I reread a book this year that I loved. And I think the book was written probably in probably during the war. Uh, It's called the Shetland bus by a guy named David Howarth. He was a British guy. And this book is, it's just him telling the stories of the Shetland Islands, which are off the coast of England, and how they set up shop over there with these ships, with these boats. Boats is the right word, boats. And they would use these boats to shuttle people and supplies over to Norway so that the Norwegians there could do all sorts of resistance stuff. I'm big into 
the French resistance, war resistance. And so these, they would shuttle people and stuff over to Norway and then they would, they would you know, uh, allow people who needed to leave Norway quickly because the Nazis were hot on their trail to come over to the Shetland Islands. And I love those books because I'm interested in World War II, but I think more than anything, going back to the idea of what are we tethered to in the past, we're not really called on to be very brave nowadays. And I love reading these books of these brave human beings. And it gives me a bit of a primer on what bravery looks like. And I'm reading these, these men's stories and thinking, oh gosh, I'd have just hit out. Like, well, let's just get through this and then everything will be okay. But these guys went, no, I, I'm, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll get on a boat and cross all this ocean and get shot at by spitfires or whatever it is, and then get over the other side and load it up with bombs and go back and go blow up some bad guys. And I, I think reading those books is good for us men. What does bravery really look like? Well, I'm, that reminds me of old Louis Zamperini from Unbroken. Yes. And you just, you, you just read that book and just go, I don't know, just give up, man. <laughs> just be done. Yeah. But men, men were made of different stuff. Metal. I, I, when I hear you tell that, that book is immediately going on my list. But I think of the types of things that the Norwegians would bring over on a boat. And I, I don't know, is it like a lot of tinned smoked fishes and maybe some ligand berries? <laughs> um, I don't know. They Does would it get into that? those ligand berries so that they could go over and poison the Nazis. Okay. They had I, to get them to Ikea by any means possible. Yes. Yeah, what are Ikea as they call it? Yeah. Um, well, after finishing Alas Babylon at the beach this summer, thank you, in-laws, I finished that so quickly that I was I was left with with days on my hands, days of repose. So I contacted my friend Jeff, fun, fun bookmeister, and he told me to follow that up with a, a, a James Bond book with a great title. Jeff, what did you tell me to read? Trigger Mortis. Trigger Mortis. Get it? Trigger Mortis. Uh, so I read a fun James Bond book, and there's nothing redeeming about it. It was just fun. I can move on unless Jeff wants to say something about it. I That's my, well, I hate the phrase guilty pleasure, but I'll dip into a James Bond book a year or something about it. He's brave. He goes after it, but yeah, he's corrupt and screws up. <laughs> but that was, a, that was a fun one. I thought that from a from a purely writing standpoint, I can't remember who wrote that. Andrew Anthony Horowitz or something. He yep. took a pretty tired genre. All these terrible writers had taken stabs at it and made the books terrible. And That's I right. thought he wrote a better book than, forgive me, even Ian Fleming had written. Right. They said that that book kind of laid out the tone that they wanted to use for the sort of modern James Bond. And you can totally see reading it. You can totally see these guys that would like, I don't know, go to the Playboy Club and smoke cigarettes with tight suits on and think they were super cool. And you could go, yeah, this is totally that generation. He wrote another one called Forever in a Day that's, I think, just as good. My my guilty pleasure spy thriller was Jack Carr, who lives in Park City down the street from me. He was on Joe Rogan. I didn't know who he was before then and i bought his 
book called Terminalist. And it's just, it's just pure, like, he'll go into two paragraphs describing the guns and the types <laughs> of bullets. And so if you're into that kind of thing, you'll like this book. And if that, like, I can't think of very many books that Stephen you would dislike more than this, but I kind of enjoyed it. So Great. That was um, the Tom Clancy world. He's going to talk about the steering wheel on a submarine for eight pages. Oh, he loves the submarines. Let's talk about how they work. Mm -hmm. I did yeah. the research. You're going to have to listen to it. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about the zeitgeist and the books that that the world told us that we were supposed to read this year. Um, hopefully, we won't get delisted talking about this stuff. But I don't know if anyone else heard this, but race was a big topic in in the cultural huh. zeitgeist this year. And just about everyone had a list of books that if you really want to dig into these these issues of race and justice and things like that, you should read these books. And, and uh, if you don't, you have nothing to say. But I did feel like, hey, I want to read the things that people are talking about and not just take someone's word for something being good or bad. Uh, so I read a lot of them. And... I'm not going to talk about too many of them. I will say a lot of people read White Fragility this year. I thought it was a fantastic example of just completely intellectually bankrupt thinking. If you want to fight about that, we could do it anytime. Give me a call. Not everything out there in this space of race and justice was bad. I actually read two books that I thought were really good and at least one of them, I, I think a lot of people have heard of. It's called Just Mercy. And it's the kind of story of a lawyer who has represented many, many people who were on death row and told the stories of, they kind of follow one particular case, but then weave in stories of other people who have been falsely accused. And then because of many things, including their race, uh, they were not given a fair trial. And I just thought it was really helpful in a time when there's lots of allegations of injustice being thrown around to hear stories of real, actual injustice and not to kind of close yourself off and say, well, I have to either be on team social justice or I have to be on team that stuff's all fake. Because the truth is this book was full of, I think, very legitimate stories that are informative and can help us kind of stop and go, there are people who are not getting a fair shake and we should absolutely care about that as Americans and as Jesus people. So I liked that one a lot. Well, we, uh, I think this was on our way to the beach. We usually drive from Cincinnati down to Florida in the summer and we do a stop along the way. And we stopped in Montgomery this year and went and saw Brian Stevenson's whole world down there. So he, he's got a little, uh, museum. He's got a, um, I guess a, an an outdoor exhibit that you walk through that that shows all of the wrongful deaths that have happened in in America through the civil rights movement and beyond. I'm very interested in him. He's not a believer. He comes to some, my opinion, some. Well, I I don't think it's my opinion. He comes to some unbiblical conclusions, but the stuff that he deals with and that he's and that he's turning over, I totally agree. We we need to hear it and, and deal with it, which is why um, 
you know, we we went into the museum, we watched the films, and I'm taking my kids through this and talking through it, and um, yeah, it's 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 helpful. The I other read the novelization of Rocky Three, and the way Rocky and Apollo Creed get be friends. Edit that out, please. It's well written. the The other book I read on this topic was called The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that book. It didn't somehow it didn't make the the role of popular books on race this year, but it's really interesting about a kid who's brilliant who grows up in one of the worst neighborhoods in America in Newark and had a few people grab a hold of him and kind of pull him out of some of the gang and drug stuff that was happening around him he had just a terrible story in terms of his father and uh, he ends up at Yale and you think oh this is a great story of someone succeeding but it's called the short and tragic life of Robert Peace because he doesn't have a long life he actually graduates from Yale and ends up back in the gang scene and selling drugs and everybody along the way after his college is kind of like, Hey, what are you doing? You could go work at an investment bank tomorrow. They would take you in a second and he can't get out. And it's just really an interesting book to make you think about the forces that are at play in that scene. And I I thought, because I had people that I was very close to in college that came from similar backgrounds and did awesome and are running companies now. Right. So I don't know what to think of it, uh, except that I would say it would be dumb to write off this guy's story as, well, he was just an, an idiot because he clearly was a brilliant guy. Mm. Um, and, and so I thought that book was a, another, to me, it's better than talking about ideas to tell stories and say, what can we learn from this story? Um, yeah. And, and that one's a good one. It's a, it sounds like a sort of um, sad photo negative of uh, J.D. Vance and mm-hmm. Hillbilly Elegy, where he made good yes. uh, coming from a really troubled background and, and completely changed the trajectory of his family. And this guy tried to rise and then fell back down. I wonder how many documentaries about people escaping poverty and all that would end this way if you revisited the subject five years after the documentary was aired. Because if you took this guy's a snapshot of this guy's life at the right time, it's a success story. He goes to an Ivy League school and gets a job. He's working in New York City. And yeah. very, very shortly thereafter, there's a vortex, kind of a black hole that he gets sucked into. So. That- that reminds me of a series I love. It's a series of British films. Stephen may have turned me on to them, uh, but they're called the Seven Up series. They were started in 1963 by, I can't remember the filmmaker's name. He actually ended up directing a lot of James Bond movies, but uh, he tracked a group of student, a group of children from the age of seven. And every seven years, he would make another documentary about those kids. And I think they're now at 63 up. I can't, get my hands on the on this newest edition that came out but it's it's a similar thing where if you watch a certain episode i say episode you know the, each episode comes out every seven years 
you would think, oh, this guy's doing great. Yeah. And then seven years later, you go, oh, he's mentally unstable. He's lost. And the one kid at, at age seven who you go, well, he will end up in jail by whatever it is, uh, you know, 49, he's on top of the world. And yeah, you don't, you don't know the, the, what's the phrase that Kennedy would always use in the, uh, in the final analysis. You know, we don't know how somebody's going to turn out. Michael Apted. Apted, thank you. Is your guy. And, um, yeah, it's a good reminder that uh, it's how you finish that matters. Hmm. <laughs> where Samson actually finished well. You know, we, we think of him as a sad story. He actually finished well. Solomon finished poorly. Richest guy ever. Why, no wiser man on earth. He finished poorly. And, and uh, the way you finish matters. So hmm. I, I was just talking, I was just talking last to a group about about discipleship and that it doesn't really matter whether you've wasted 50 years or not it doesn't really matter if you've stagnated in infancy for a long time it is never too late to go i'm going to pursue all that god has for my life starting now and and if that's the case with your finances you feel like you're behind you know join the club everybody feels like they're behind financially so get over your pity and let's go. Uh, you think, well, I don't, I don't know the Bible. Newsflash, nobody sitting around you on Sunday mornings knows their Bible. So start reading it. Um, I, I should be in a men's group right now. Great. Call two guys and meet them for coffee. Like it is how we finish. There, there's not, we don't take an average of your life and go, <laughs> was it a good life or not? Well, you averaged out poorly. That's not how it works. Similarly, if you're 25 year old right now and you think you're killing it and you think you're such a great disciple and I'm a great husband, great. That is wonderful. You need to set your dials on 85 years old. You, you need to prepare yourself for a marathon. I, I like being reminded of that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. I, I'll throw in a book that I read this year that I really Please. enjoyed. It was Six Crises by Richard Milhouse Nixon. Hey. And he wrote it after he lost the presidential election to Kennedy in 60. And you read this and the six crises are that he just talks about six crises he, he worked through the Alger, his case, uh, this, the checkers speech, Eisenhower had a heart attack while he was vice president. He was attacked by a mob in Venezuela, the kitchen debate with Khrushchev in Moscow. And when he lost the 1960 election, what we know of Nixon is you really oh, remember this book excellently, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. We remember Nixon as this bad guy. You know, he he destroyed the presidency. He did all these terrible things. But there was a time you read this book. He was wide eyed and wonderful and objective and as humble as you could be. Like not, he, he would keep talking about, look, you just don't want to, you don't want to go after your enemies. That's a losing game. He's saying all these things. And then what we know is. That's what he did. He did all of those things. As a matter of fact, between the three of us and the thousands of listeners, I've always had in my head that there's a great movie to be written basically about the Alger Hiss case where Nixon's the good guy. 
and he's standing against everything that we know as a savvy 2021 people know he, he will eventually him. become and it becomes a tragic thing only in our eyes at the end of the movie it's a happy thing he gets the he gets his man everything goes well but we're watching oh, this going movie oh man now granted after they say nixon was one of the best ex-presidents that existed so it's not like he flamed out after watergate but it's that same thing it's not the average of your life if you're doing well don't give up keep going at it and recognize yeah. that you know the devil doesn't take the day off do you want to throw out another one before you go jeff i read apropos of nothing by woody allen his autobiography it's entertaining fun and off mark's look that i can see uh it makes you realize that here's why it was important to read this book it makes you realize just how nefarious the media is now i get it oh you're reading woody allen so of course he's innocent of those things yeah of course he makes he sets it all up and goes every court every investigator everyone cleared me of this everyone i can't get work for love or money people have turned their back on me now granted has he done a bunch of wonky things sure but what he's with been accused wonky. of with his wonky his woody yeah. wonky what he's been accused of i think isn't true and yet somehow the media got a hold of this and he was one of the early cancel culture people yeah. you're done we're done with you even though all of the evidence is to the contrary i found it a fascinating book plus i like his movies and i think he's a hilarious guy and he also says diane keaton uh eats like a logger she eats oh. vast, vast amounts of food so there's that okay apropos of nothing that's right. So apropos of nothing, I'm going to leave. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Thanks it's for a... joining us, Jeff. We'll see you again. Yeah, it's a sure. pleasure. Thank you for being here. We'll we'll promote your all your mini books uh, after you're gone. Yeah, I really, really try to hit uh, the Jack Ryan series. I'm most proud of those. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, Jeff's gone. Finally. I don't think our listeners necessarily want another hour, so I'm going to give you some rapid-fire stuff to react to, okay? I'm not in any hurry. I don't think you have to rapid-fire. I think this is interesting, but you can you can go at any rate you want. There's clients that need me, Stephen, so I'm okay, going to go okay. medium-fire. Right, okay, medium-fire. Medium I'm going to fire like as fast as I can, but still using a bolt-action rifle. How about I that? I see. And since we're talking about bolt action or maybe a lever action cowboy gun. Let me tell you about a book I read that uh, made me think about what types of books I want to read in the future. I think there's something valuable to reading fiction about the places that have meaning in your past. So All right. if that means, you know, you did some ancestry.com research with my good friends and and neighbors here the mormons and you learned about where your family came from and you found out hey we're all scottish well i think there's something to be gained by going and reading either history or fiction and learning about what it's like to be in scotland in 1400 and it's cool um for yeah. me my family has really deep ties to San Angelo, Texas, which is a small to medium-sized town in West Texas. And my dad grew up there. My grandfather was the mayor of the town for a long time, about a decade. I only knew it as a place where I would go for really delicious 
West Texas holiday delights at Thanksgiving and Christmas. I didn't know much else about San Angelo, but I read Cormac McCarthy's book, All the Pretty Horses. And oh boy, it's too bad we don't have Jeff here for this. Go ahead. I haven't read Cormac McCarthy before. I know he writes a lot of stuff that people really like, but this book, it starts and finishes in San Angelo, and it's kind of a coming-of-age cowboy story about two kids that experience really one main character that experiences tragedy and just gets on a horse and rides down to Mexico and ends up with, with a buddy and they get into adventures and it's got all the ingredients of a good cowboy story, but it's also got a lot of West Texas place in it. You can feel the the place. And I thought that was cool. And it is just a really well-written book to boot. Love the Western. I enjoyed that uh, Matt Damon film. I think it was Matt Damon in uh, 2000. Oh, they made a movie out of it? Yeah, they did. Wow. The other Western I read was called The Big Sky. It came recommended to me. It was written by the same guy who wrote my dad's favorite movie as a kid, which is a cowboy movie called Shane. Oh, yeah. Um, Come back, Shane. The author of the book is A.B. Guthrie Jr. It's... A little bit gruff. Uh, there's there's a lot of cussing and and stuff in it, but it was kind of a good just cowboy story as well. I see. Well, I'm I, I'm going to dovetail off of your cowboy tales. Um, this is this is going to be a this is going to be well that would be a Brokeback Mountain. Just a joke. Cowboy tales. I'm gonna I'm going to zig. I'm going to zig and talk about children's books. Or not, not, it's not really a children's book. It's books that you read with your children. And my friend Michael encouraged me to start this series about this kid who lives uh, about 1905 and his uh, adventures in Colorado. And in his family tries to establish a farm. These are true stories. They're kind of like a, they're kind of like a boy version of a Little House on the Prairie series. Um, his family tries to establish a farm. Um, they have to move into town because the dad dies. The son um, goes out for a summer. He's, I believe, 11 or 12 years old. And for the summer, he is hired on a cattle ranch in the mountains. And he does man's work, man's work as a 12-year-old. And he describes it all. Um, the, the name of the series is Little Britches. And I'm I we're presently reading those with my girls. I think we're on the fourth book right now. There's eight books in the series. And like Little House on the Prairie, they are believers. Their faith is um, very practical. It's very simple. We believe that God takes care of us. They sing hymns around the kitchen table, etc., but it's to to refer back to something Jeff was saying, and you said as well, is that you get a look at the steel that was in people early 1900s. It's unbelievable what these people do and and how they they endure and they figure out a way to make it. Um, anyways, a great series which I recommend. My my uh, girls are uh, nine and eleven, and it is a great series for them. We we're big fans of the of the long narrative yeah and i like this one too because they're cowboys so i like that 
that's fun. I, I just started in 2020 reading books to my kids that I would enjoy, not just books they would enjoy. Mm-hmm. And we got through two of the, the Laura Ingalls Wilder's books. And we are currently in the middle of Little House on the Prairie. Excellent. Uh, the third, as well as... We started last Shabbat as a family reading the book I told you about, I think a couple podcasts ago, where we read, or we got these Lord of the Rings books. Oh, yeah. Uh, And it's been awesome because my wife thought she hated Lord of the Rings. And she's like, you know, those are hilarious. That's great. I did some homework and got the audiobook of The Hobbit with a professional British actor reading them. And I have been listening to it and it makes me so much better at reading them. I I don't know if those of you who listen to me and my kind of nasally monotone voice here on the podcast every week, but I am not a natural voice actor and listening to somebody else read it has made it easier. I'm still not saying I'm great, but for me to do character voices and really I get myself in the mood. I pour myself a little scotch and the children sit at my feet and it's very uh, idyllic scene when we read The Hobbit. And they just watch their father just drink alcohol. Uh, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I want to, we, we should do a whole uh, podcast on, on reading to your children because I once took a class on reading to your children and I, I, I found it enlightening. I bet our listeners would be interested. I think it's an important topic. Mark it down. We should do okay. that. I, I don't want to even really comment on these, but I read 1984 and Brave New World this year. Oh, Brave New World. I love it. And let's just say I felt that there were some parallels to some of really? the things I was hearing on the news. No kidding. In those books. So I, darn. I had never read those in high school. We we spent all our time learning Latin and reading like stuff written in 1000 BC. So we Boring. didn't get to we didn't get to some of the stuff you normal people read. Uh, um, Brave New World is just one of my favorites. I like 1984 among the two, but I know you love Brave New World, and I, I thought they were both love good. It. And and related to that, if you ever read Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, it's science fiction along those same lines, but it's it's a it's as apropos. Yes, I read that last year. It was great. It's a um, I also got to finally reading my wife's favorite book ever this year, which b- bad move on your 15th year of marriage, finally reading your wife's favorite book, but at least I did it. I had tried you three times before to get through it. Now and you I finish. just couldn't, uh, but that was tale of two cities by Charles Dickens, man. I feel like maybe it's just cause I was thinking about this stuff, but this and Gulag archipelago and Live Not By Lies and Brave New World in 1984, they all have a lot in common. So this huh. focuses on the French Revolution where... I remember that being a snoozer, but I was a high school student that wouldn't have seen the application. Man, I tell you what, I, I like reading classic literature. I had to read the Cliff's Notes for the first half of the book. I would read the Cliff's wow. Notes and then read the chapter wow. just because... It was not that interesting and took some some effort, but about halfway to two thirds of the way through the book, it takes off and you're in France and there's they're guillotining people and the place where it really makes me feel like, oh, this, this is creepily ca- uh, familiar to what we're hearing today is 
the person who's leading the charge, let's go take out these traitors to the Republic, is the one laying on the guillotine uh, two days later because right. the, the mob has found something about them that's not, uh, that's right. not matching the, the picture of the perfect revolutionary. So uh, the book is not really about, uh, I think it has a lot of lessons for us in dealing with the mob that's going to come after you, but it's just as much about what it looks like to love completely sacrificially and lay your life down for someone else. So. Wow good book uh man it's worth every bit of struggle it takes to get to the to the fast-paced wow last third wow well my finale book it's it <laughs> it's curious listen us talk about these books that there's not a there's not a sort of uh inspirational devotional book in the lot um and those are typically the books that i have read i mean i always feel like my major in life is following Jesus. So I want to read books about my major. Along those lines, I taught a class earlier this year about uh, revival. There, there's a whole bunch of incredible books on that subject. And, and uh, my friend Austin uh, gave me this book called Azusa Street by Frank Bartleman. And the Azusa Street revival in California um, had had repercussions uh, on into the Jesus movement of the 70s, ending in the 80s. Um, really important revival. And reading Azusa Street was a very healthy uh, splash of cold water to the face of... Now, I'm going to again contrast modern times with, you know, when, when men were men. Um, to this milk toast, comfortable, lazy, whiny, self-centered version of Christianity that we we're swimming in presently. The Azusa Street Revival uh, started with people getting together in a room and laying on their face in prayer and travail for hours and hours at a time. It was not an inspirational speaker who came and, you know, in, he, there was no George Whitfield there to, to get people's hearts all wound up. Um, there, was not, there was nothing happening that would produce any sort of religious froth anywhere. There was just prayer that happened. And this guy, Frank Bartleman, this dude paid the price. I'm talking about over through the night prayer many 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 times and he he had a life of prayer i mean it should be called my prayer life by frank bartleman it's called azusa street and you i find it very healthy very nutritious to look back um, so that I can stop this thing that we reflexively do, which is we compare ourselves to the, quote, Jesus seekers around us. And we think, I, I don't know, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, the, I'm doing what they're doing. And when you compare yourself with, say, I don't know, the life of Christ or Paul's life or people who lived in and produced revival, you know, the great disciple makers 
whoever it, whoever it is. I mean, it could even be a, just a more interesting read like Jim Elliott. But it helps us to put before our faces sold out disciples so that we can look at our whiny selfishness and go like, that's not really, not, not only is it not appropriate, I'm not living like true Christianity. You read something like The Heavenly Man, which is a page turner. You love, This is what a life of devotion looks like. That's what I want to live. So anyways, I, 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 if you're a student of revival or you're just a student of fire and you want fire in your heart, I would recommend Azusa Street to go like this. This is what it's supposed to look like. That we're, we're supposed to be sold out, wholehearted, Heaven, heaven devoted. Yeah, that's good. Uh, one of the, the two books I'm going to wrap up with is maybe, to me, it's in the same vein of looking to stories of believers from totally different scenarios that make me go, wow, there's, there's a lot more uh, digging I have to do before I hit the bedrock layer here. Yeah. Um, and so before I tell you which book it is, I'll say <laughs> I had a, realization this year, an epiphany that happened when I was in the home of a dead man. Um, I went to an estate sale and I started looking and they had a ton of books and I was thinking about it. I, I throw away crappy books um, and I get some joy out of that. I, I don't pass along a book that's absolute garbage. Right. But then if it's good, I keep it. And, uh, if I, if I'm going to lend it out, I generally say, Hey, just give it back to me. Cause I want to keep lending this out. Uh, and to have a book, uh, collection that belonged to somebody who is no longer with us. To me, there's a good chance that a lot of those books were ones that were good enough, at least not to go into the waste bin or the goodwill pile. Um, and I, I experienced that to be true this year. I very interesting, very found interesting. It, I found several books at estate sales that were 50 cents that ended up being awesome. And I really didn't know anything about them except that they looked interesting on the cover. Um, One of them was called Treblinka and it's the story of Treblinka, which was one of the concentration camps. It was really the first one that was a mass extermination camp. And the, the cover of the book, the inside flap, it's like, this is the story of how the Jews at Treblinka revolted and took over the camp. And I won't tell you too much of the details, uh, except that it's 300 and something pages. And on page 10 pages from the end, you're like, when are they going to take over the camp? Uh, (laughs) So it's, uh, it's interesting in that regard. And it's definitely a story of people who deceived themselves repeatedly from the time they lived in the in the main cities in Poland to the time they were moved to a ghetto to the time they got transferred and they're always saying this is the best thing we can do for our kids and for our families is to uh not cause trouble here wait it will go it will go away and it's pretty uh sobering to hear the story the other one that I'll wrap up with that kind of was the Treblinka Jean-Francois Steiner. Yes, it was written in in French, I believe. So it was translated. Uh, The other book is called The Pope Who Quit. It is by... John Sweeney. John M. Sweeney. 
this Sweeney. book is about Celestine the Fifth. And I know most of you know the whole story about Celestine the Fifth and know your popes pretty well. But I mean, everybody knows, uh, no, this is an old story. But for those of you who don't know your popes, up until Benedict recently, Celestine V was the only pope who had ever walked off the job. I'll set it up for you because it's such a cool story. But this dude is a hermit and kind of a monk living in the Dolomites in Italy. He's up in the mountains in caves because he said he could pray and fast and be with the Lord up there uh, better than in the cities. And the uh, College of Cardinals equivalent back then, they would get together when someone died and it was a political uh, argumentation process over who got to be the next Pope. And they specifically had... um, fights over which which controlling group got their guy in next and uh very interesting but they had recently spent three years arguing over who would be the next pope they were supposed to take 10 days to do that and they were taking daily pay well and the only way they eventually chose a pope is when some people locked their door from the outside and then knocked out the roof in the room where they were meeting so that the rain could come in on them. And then they Smart. got inspired by the Lord to to choose a Pope. Smart. Um, well, this dude, Peter Morone, uh, is up in the mountains doing his hermit thing and hears that there's they're at it again. Another one has died and they're gonna and he writes a scathing letter saying, You dirty cardinals, pick a pope like you're supposed to and do your job. And there's a few ways you can choose a pope. One of them is the standard way nowadays where they take a vote, but another is called by inspiration. And someone decided to try this and they yell out, Peter Morone, that's the name of this guy who wrote them the the corrective letter. And everyone else yelled his name and that was it. He was the new Pope. Oh my um, And so they go get this guy and every bit of this book is just fascinating because he literally had lived his whole life basically as a John the Baptist type almost in the wilderness. And they go get him. They hike up this mountain that they had a hard time even climbing and they bring him down and they tell him you're the Pope. And he's just thinking, what are you talking about? And they put him in and he immediately starts just doing a horrible job, making terrible decisions. And after five months, he says, I've got to quit. I, I, this isn't, the job for me. I just want to go back to the mountains and pray. And it doesn't go well for him from that point on Mm. in life. So I'll let you read it to find out what happened. But the interesting thing to me too, is that this guy, uh, when the book was written, no one had ever resigned since then. But the author was saying Benedict, who was the Pope at the time this book was written, had gone to Celestine V's grave and laid his papal garment onto the grave so benedict was a big fan of this guy and benedict as we now know would be the second pope to ever uh resign without dying fascinating Uh, so it's pretty interesting and you get the sense that this poor sap was a terrible leader but he actually did love the lord right Um, and it's it's uh it's kind of a tragic story, but um, I thought it was a really good book, and it was also only fifty cents, so hard to go wrong there. <laughs> so if you can find it for fifty cents, dive in. 
or your local library. Okay, thank you for this uh, review of all your stuff. Why don't we finish with uh, you, you telling us what you're reading at this very minute? Yeah, so I'm reading this book, The Practice of the Presence of oh, God. Oh, baby. By Brother Lawrence, because I'm, I'm just into stuff that uh, was written hundreds of years ago lately. And on that note, I just finished Pilgrim's Progress the other night. Wing Dinger. Amazing. Um, I'll just uh, I'll just uh, harken back to the reading to your children thing. Uh, we're really we're really uh, using the guts of our future podcast by continuing <laughs> to talk about this. But you should one should if one wants to make disciples of one's children, one should find a young reader's version because um, Pilgrim's Progress is written in very old English. You should you should find a young reader's version and read Pilgrim's Progress to your children. Uh, Saving Bravo is my current book to read while I'm falling asleep, which is about the biggest coordinated uh, downed soldier rescue mission that went on during the Vietnam War. And it's pretty fun. And just it's this this memoir of a guy who got shot down over Vietnam and was 52 years old. It's kind of hard to even think about 52 wow. year olds fighting and like i said i'm taking about 10 pages a day of the case for amillennialism and trying to figure out if i'm a pre-mill post-mill or amill type okay. eschatological <laughs> being all right right okay how about you Great. what's in what's oh, in flight? i just I just started a book I was given for Christmas, uh, which you might be familiar with, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It's the story of how the Federal Reserve came to be. The premise is basically that the that the uh, Federal Reserve is a cartel. It's a government-sponsored car sponsored cartel. So anyhow, let's see how that goes. Sweet. Well, guys... We bless your reading efforts. We hope that maybe this opens your your mind up to reading both fiction, to be to reading cultural commentary, to reading uh, from believers who are going to teach you more about the Lord. All those are good things. We think you should do it. And until we talk to you next week, this is Mark Parrott for Abraham's Wallet, and it's Stephen Manuel saying read Mark's blog post on of the same topic. Oh yeah, we forgot to talk about that. Yeah. We, have, we have a written version of this yeah. up on the on the website and I will try to put links to all the books we talked about oh. today in okay. the show notes. So okay. sayonara. All right, thanks. Bye.